Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Back in April, Chronicle reporters Matias Gaffney and Cynthia Dizikas shared their harrowing investigation into the death of a two-year-old named Eileen Jong. She had been diagnosed with stage four liver cancer and needed a complicated surgery known as a liver resection. Her parents, Tom and Truco Jong, chose John Muir Health in Walnut Creek to perform it. They picked John Muir over other local pediatric hospitals like UCSF because the hospital promised quality health care close to their Danville home. The hospital also had an attractive partnership with Stanford Children's Health. Here's Eileen's dad, Tom Jong, explaining that decision. It was the Stanford brand and, um, you know, sort of that, the halo around that brand that attracted us to John Muir because we had never heard of John Muir. I didn't even know the hospital was there. I only found it because I was looking at Stanford. Sadly, Eile died on John Muir's operating table, and reporting by Matias and Cynthia found that the hospital had potentially made some critical missteps in her care. Today on Fifth Emission, Matias and Cynthia are back with their ongoing investigation into John Muir Health. In their latest story, they've taken a closer look at the hospital's pediatric intensive care unit, or PICU. We'll meet new families whose children died under John Muir Health's care in the past, including Vicki Plumley, who says she was given little information when her 13-year-old daughter, Katrina Daly, became gravely ill. Plumley had to take her daughter off of life support in 2016 because of a catastrophic brain injury that happened under John Muir's watch. I had to make the decision of, am I going to leave her on life support knowing that she was definitely never going to be the insane child <laughs> that I raised who was so ridiculous and silly, was so gentle and kind-hearted, but I had to make a decision and I had to let her go. Cynthia Matias's latest reporting reveals that it's possible Katrina Daly's brain injury could have been prevented. They spent months investigating John Muir's PICU cases, analyzing thousands of pages of medical records, internal documents, and public records. They also consulted more than two dozen pediatric medical experts, 10 of whom reviewed Katrina Daly's case and those of other families. They shared that John Muir's inexperience in treating exceptionally sick children may have contributed to their deaths. So, How exactly did John Muir Health, a hospital with a shiny, promising Stanford partnership established in 2012, go from marketing this? Families can come and they don't have to drive for hours or seek lodging. They have access to world-class care in their own backyard. To making parents like Katrina Daly's feel like this. It's a matter of their pride. Their money. Their money and their pride. It seems to me like they were so gung-ho about wanting to be able to provide this kind of care when they are not a facility that is ready to and probably will never be 
a facility who is ready to. Cynthia Dizikas and Matias Gaffney are here to share their latest John Muir Health investigation. What went wrong and what lessons can be learned for parents seeking critical care for their children? Thank you both for being here. Matias, I'd love to start with you. So this latest investigation is a deep look at John Muir's pediatric ICU, or PICU. How does this build on the last investigation that you and Cynthia shared back in April? We've been working incredibly hard since April to pull this second story together. Really one of the more challenging stories I've ever worked on. I think Cynthia probably would agree. If you remember from Eileen's story, we had learned through our reporting that there were two other deaths of children at the hospital, one involving diabetes and one involving asthma. And we knew very little about it when we did that reporting, but that was really our target. We found those families who agreed to share their children's medical records, and we found you know a lot of similarities. But I think the, the general idea was John Muir taking on complicated, complex, critical cases that they perhaps were not capable of handling. And that really thrust us into a focus on John Muir's pick you in its seven years of existence and looking into it more deeply. Now, Cynthia, what continues to be under scrutiny here is that Stanford's co-branding with John Muir, which instills a lot of confidence in families to choose John Muir Health for their care. Explain for me, how involved is Stanford in equipping, you know, the resources and personnel to build the John Muir PICU? So our understanding is that the hiring for the PICU ran through Stanford and that Stanford supplied specialists like endocrinologists and surgeons to take on complex or critical cases in the unit. But the exact details of their alliance, the partnership between John Muir and Stanford Medicine Children's Health, those are opaque as, you know, their partnership is run through an LLC and it isn't required to publicly disclose any additional information. But that is the selling point, right? And essentially the marketing of the John Muir Health Pediatric Care Program is that they are aligned with Stanford, at least in external messaging, right? Exactly. And even more explicitly, the family of Eileen Jong, as we reported in April, they said that they were promised Stanford-level care. Now, Matias, I want to talk about PICUs more since that was the focus of this story. The state has set quality measures and standards for PICUs in order to ensure quality care. That includes things like a minimum caseload number of 350 patients. Your investigation notes that this is something that John Muir Health has never been able to meet since opening in 2015. And this is a critical point that you both reiterate throughout the story. Why? Yeah, I think that's really something that we became very familiar with on our reporting is the volume that PICUs see is a big indicator, according to the experts we spoke to, about a number of performance levels in a medical setting. I think you can equate it to to any job where, you know, the more you do something, the better you become at it. Mm-hmm. And especially in critical care that we're talking about here, right? This is the, the pediatric critical care. This is some of, you know, the most serious cases that a hospital will see. And if you're not seeing a tremendous amount of kids, you're just not able to adjust when a child deteriorates or you're not able to notice when a child is deteriorating because you just don't see that many cases and you're not handling that many cases each year. Mm. So 
how does the numbers for this threshold at John Muir compare to other PICUs in the region like UCSF, for example? So the state, as you mentioned, sets a minimum caseload standard of 350 each year. And that's to get your state certification, which enables you to see more patients and you can get kids who are more serious. It shows that you reach a minimum proficiency is what the state says. And so John Muir had never reached that 350 level. And nearby, there are hospitals, you know, very prominent children's hospitals nearby, UCSF, Benioff in Oakland, in San Francisco, Stanford. They all ranged in about the mid-800s to low 2000s annual patients that they see in their PICUs. Cynthia, the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about the Zhang family, whose daughter Ailee died after undergoing a complicated liver surgery at John Muir. For this latest investigation, you found at least three more John Muir Health pediatric patients whose deaths, experts said, could have been prevented. Tell me about the care that those children needed and why their families felt John Muir could manage it. The additional child deaths that we explored at John Muir As Matthias mentioned, they all involved different conditions and situations, but what unified all of them is that they were all conditions that John Muir had marketed itself as being able to take on with its new PICU, and in all the cases, Mm -hmm. the children were exceptionally ill or medically fragile, according to the experts we spoke to, but the parents told us they assumed John Muir was equipped to handle them. For instance, one of the children, 13-year-old Katrina Daly, was taken to John Muir's PICU in February 2016 for complications related to a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. And her mother, Vicki Plumley, told us that she assumed John Muir's PICU had been around for years. And her mother is from this area, so she just had this impression that its PICU was really established. And she said doctors didn't tell her that it had just opened the previous year. The only thing that they said was the PICU was a better facility to take care of her because they were more specialized in pediatric care. A second child, 16-year-old Caitlin Gonzalez, was transferred to John Mayer's PICU in January 2018 from another local hospital. She had pneumonia in both lungs, and she had this condition known as air leak syndrome, where air leaks under the skin and also around the heart out of the lungs. It can be a very critical condition. And so Caitlin's mother, Sherry Gonzalez, told us that she thought that John Muir's PICU was equipped to handle her daughter's condition. Another child, Isaiah Lofton, was referred to a spinal surgeon who works at John Muir for Isaiah's very complex spinal fusion operation. And his mother, Michelle Brantley, told us she was impressed by the association with Stanford and assumed Isaiah was going to get that level of care. I've always taken Isaiah to Children's Hospital Oakland. They seem to have been good for him. They were talking about, you know, if Isaiah was going to go through all this infection, then I'd rather him go to John Muir where it was nice and clean. It appeared more sterile. I thought that was a good decision. Tragically, the children of these families you spoke to, they all died under John Muir Health's care. Each case was pretty complex and different from one another. But, Matthias, what were some of the common issues that you found? I think overall, we spoke to experts who said that had these kids, all these kids gone to higher volume, more specialized hospitals, 
that their deaths may have been preventable. Mm. And more particularly, um, there were some very common threads among the actual like nitty gritty of their medical care. The real obvious ones to us were the code and intubation process. So this is like one of the most important parts of a PICU is respiratory failure, right? That's what you're seeing with kids and protecting the airways, getting them on ventilators when that happens. And so with Katrina and Caitlin's cases, they both had issues with their intubations. Intubation is when you are putting a breathing tube down the throat of a child, and that's when their oxygen levels are dropping, they're struggling breathing, and you want to get a ventilator that pumps air into their lungs to keep them alive, right? This is like kind of the bread and butter of a PICU. And on both of these cases, they struggled to intubate the girls. It took them three attempts to intubate them. We spoke to experts, and the records show that there's greenish-brown fluids coming up during the intubation process, which may indicate that these doctors placed the breathing tube into the esophagus rather than the trachea. You're pumping oxygen into the girl's stomachs, and that can make vomit come up. And of course, you're not getting oxygen into their lungs when that happens. For Katrina's case, it took them 20 minutes to finally successfully intubate her, according to the records that we analyzed. And with Caitlin, it took 14 minutes. And with Katrina's case, she suffered a catastrophic brain injury, and a, a neurologist who examined her afterwards indicated that that was because of a prolonged resuscitation. In a moment, we'll be back with Chronicle investigative reporters Matias Gaffney and Cynthia Dizikas. Parents like Katrina Daly's mom say John Muir Health didn't provide a lot of information about why their children died. Matias and Cynthia consulted with medical experts to help get answers. They'll share what they learned. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm back with Chronicle investigative reporters Matias Gaffney and Cynthia Dizikas. In April 2015, John Muir Health opened its Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, or PICU, and promised to provide quality and convenient care to patients through their partnership with Stanford Medicine Children's Health. But the PICU has never met the state's required minimum number of caseloads, raising questions about the hospital's ability to treat pediatric patients with complex conditions. Through their investigation, Matias and Cynthia were able to find four children whose deaths might have been preventable. So, Cynthia, before the break, we learned that the staff at John Muir Health had issues intubating Katrina Daly and Caitlin Gonzalez. Were their families given reasons on why they died? That's a great question. It's something we spent a lot of time talking to the parents about, obviously, as we progressed through their cases with these expert insights. 
And all of them said they were given few specifics about how the care their children received may have contributed to their children's deaths. So speaking of the few specifics that parents were given by John Muir Health, let's listen to a little bit of the conversation you both shared with Vicki Plumley. That's the mother of Katrina Daly, who died after experiencing a brain injury under the hospital's care six years ago. The only thing that they said, at least that I remember, is that she just went into cardiac arrest. They had no explanation as to why. They just said that her heart stopped. At no point did any of the doctors give us any kind of warnings or say these are the things that could happen. And they all kind of gave us blind hope. You know, we look back on it and that's exactly what it was. It was blind hope. Um, There was no indication that anything as serious as what happened could have happened. So, Cynthia, you and Matias consulted with more than two dozen pediatric medical experts on the family's cases to help fill the gaps in communication that Katrina's mom was describing here. What were some answers you were able to provide to her? So with Katrina's case, the expert insights were actually some of the most, I would say, layered over the course of her care at John Muir. The experts we spoke to pointed to a constellation of missteps during her time in the PICU. They said that doctors gave Katrina too little fluids and an electrolyte called phosphorus, which they said contributed to her respiratory and ultimate cardiac failure. And they said in her case, there were signs that she should have been intubated earlier. And they said those signs that they really should have moved forward with an invasive form of therapy for her, uh, mechanical ventilation and intubation included that she had a worsening mental state, increasing levels of carbon dioxide in her blood, faster than normal pulse and lower than normal blood pressure, which are indications that her heart could be failing. And they noted, just like what Matias discussed, that doctors struggled to intubate her when they had to in a more emergency situation. And Vicki Plumley told us that the message they got was that Everything was going to be fine. Everything was being managed. And then, again, after her daughter's heart stopped and she suffered this brain injury from lack of oxygen, Vicky told us that doctors never told her family about their intubation struggles. If there's something wrong, tell me. If there's something that needs to change, tell me. That open line of communication is crucial for everything. To find out that there is such a massive lack of communication between the doctors and me as the parent, the one who's making the decisions for my child who can't speak for herself anymore. It's monumental. Matias, I want to talk about the other case that you looked at. That's of Isaiah Lofton, a 15-year-old who had an extensive spinal fusion surgery at John Muir. You both spoke with his mother, Michelle Brantley, her son died in 2019 after having sepsis after the surgery. Experts you spoke to questioned how aggressively John Muir doctors tried to combat an infection that later became fatal. Let's listen to how she's processing his death three years later. I'm so upset. I mean, every time I think about it, all of my shoulda, woulda, couldas keep coming back, flooding back, and I'm just like, damn it. I I didn't really have much time to grieve because I've been on survival mode for the last three years. So I still have this flood of 
why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? You know, it just drives me nuts, you know, because Isaiah has had so many close. I mean, he's been at death's door many times before, mm -hmm. and he's always come out of it. But this time, you know, it just, it, it, it he just got worse. Matthias, we can hear Michelle's anguish here that she's still tormented by wondering if she made any kind of misstep. I understand that the experts you spoke to, they generally think you shouldn't over-treat patients immediately after surgery, but they do agree that some serious things went wrong with Isaiah's care. What happened? Make no mistake, Isaiah was an incredibly fragile patient. He was born with a, a number of issues. He was a neuromuscular patient where he had 105-degree curvature of his spine. This was a massive surgery, a major complicated surgery. And he also, because of his condition, was prone to an infection afterwards. All that being said, still those types of patients very rarely die from an infection. We spoke to experts who said it looked like the surgery went fine, first of all, but his aftercare, generally speaking, they said overall it wasn't aggressively handled enough once the infection was found. They should have kept him on IV antibiotics longer. Some of the experts said his mom, she notices a hole opening up on his spine, brings him in with this infection, and they clean out the infection. The experts we spoke to said they should have done more than one clean out in that situation before sewing him back up again. He goes back home after that. And months later, now he's 16, he's had a birthday, and a second infection opens up on the upper part of his surgical site. They schedule an appointment for him to come in for another clean out about a week later. And that is what the experts really point to of where a mistake was made, where if an infection like that opens up where his hardware from his surgery is seen through this hole in his back. Like this is an emergent situation. This is incredibly serious and he needs to go into the hospital ASAP. And that didn't happen when he eventually goes into the hospital for the clean out. He is diagnosed with sepsis and by then it, it's too late and he winds up passing away soon after. Now, Cynthia, this sort of begs the question, after talking to medical experts that point out these deficiencies in the care given by John Muir Health, and going back to that state PICU patient volume threshold, if that's a standard that John Muir Health hasn't been able to meet since it's opened, why has the PICU remained certified by the state to treat children with these really complex medical conditions? So we posed that question almost exactly to the Department of Healthcare Services. And a spokesperson told us that the admission threshold is not, quote, in and of itself binding for this type of approval. Mm. And they said they, they look at several factors, including critical patient outcomes, personnel expertise, staffing levels, and safety to gauge the quality of care provided and assess each PICU's operational performance. So essentially, it's one of many factors they consider when moving forward with certification. Matias, what about internal reviews conducted by John Muir Health itself? They must be concerned about patients dying under their care. What kind of internal accountability steps have they made? 
there's different layers of internal reviews at any hospital. At John Muir, they have an organization called PPEC that's made up of a bunch of doctors and they look over all the deaths in the hospital and they go through and see if there's maybe new policies that need to be set. And we've also learned that right after Caitlin's death, so this is the second botched intubation death that happens at the hospital in 2018, the hospital hired this consultant group to review the PICU, to do a risk assessment. And in that, they found 10, quote, areas for improvement Mm -hmm. within that unit. And that included competency, that included how they communicate with parents after an adverse event. So it hit on some areas where the cases seem to have been lacking. They also, we learned, brought in their partner, Stanford, and some of the officials from their PICU at Stanford to do an external review. And we uh, learned through a reporting that that was presented to uh, another internal review panel called the MEC, and that carries a little more weight. But there was very little discussion about these individual cases and what happened, but rather they presented statistics that showed that the PICU was performing as expected. Cynthia, as Matias mentioned at the top of this conversation, this was a really hard story to do. And part of what probably makes this so hard is reaching out to these families years after their children have died and having them relive that experience for both of you. Why do you think these families were so willing to to speak with both of you? Uh, Yeah, this is a really important point, I think. This was an incredibly difficult endeavor for all of these families. But all of them said they wanted other parents who might find themselves in similar situations to know what they went through, to know what they didn't know at the time, in hopes that they might be able to prevent the same type of catastrophic loss for other families losing a child. The reason that I'm talking about it is for something that is not just beneficial for me and cathartic for me to get it out. It's going to help doctors and nurses understand that what they say and what they do and how they act and and how they write stuff and reports is going to have a huge impact on how families receive the information. For Katrina's parents, they weren't told a lot after their daughter died. And for them, they wanted to see what experts would say about their record and they wanted to know more about what had happened. I've learned quite a bit, and some of my own personal guilt can be washed away because of it. There's nothing I could have done. It's also eye-opening to us to see, like, this is the medical profession. These are the people that we trust with our lives, literally. We can't beat ourselves up all the time. But now I don't have to beat myself up. Matias, speaking of affected families. The parents of Ailey Jong, that's the child whose death you spotlighted in your last investigation, they filed a lawsuit against John Muir Health. What's the status of that case? Yeah, so that's moving its way through civil court. There's been some interesting developments actually recently. One portion of their lawsuit, which their attorney felt was the most important, was they alleged fraud. And that's really interesting in that it hits on the key factors that all the parents said was they got this sales pitch, right? That they're getting Stanford level care locally and they would argue that they didn't receive that. And so the judge said that they can proceed 
on the fraud charges. And in his argument, he ruled that Eilie's doctors, quote, had a duty to make truthful statements and disclose additional information about the difference between John Muir and Stanford. So the case is moving forward and is ongoing. And eventually they're going to start asking for discovery and uh, depositions and all that. Now, I have to ask both of you, because I know both of you are parents, and investigating John Muir Health's PICU and pediatric care must have been pretty eye-opening. And you both sort of became like these medical investigators with these stories. So as parents, what have you both learned about examining the quality of care that your child may receive? I would say do your homework ask questions, not just about the doctor that may be, you know, operating on your son or daughter, but ask about the supporting staff. Have they done this procedure before? For instance, I would say just because a hospital or a particular unit on a hospital looks shiny and new and you get your own luxury suite where you're all alone and you don't have to room with someone else, that doesn't necessarily equate to better care. Mm-hmm. A big takeaway for me was like talking to the Jongs where they felt like they got pitched on John Muir as like, you know, all these other hospitals, Children's Oakland, they're swamped with activity. You're just not getting the same attention as you will here at John Muir. That's how they kind of said they were kind of sold on John Muir where you're going to get all their attention. But the flip side of that is that's not necessarily a good thing. You want them to have seeing more patients or seeing more kids with these, these types of ailments and they know how to react to them. They know what to look for. And so not necessarily having like few patients in there and getting better one-on-one attention is not necessarily for the best interest of your child. I think that the lessons learned go to anyone who might be responsible for another person's care. And one of the parents we spoke to, Matthias, just mentioned the Jongs. Eileen's father, Tom Jong, summarized it really well in saying, you don't know what you don't know. And I can say just at the outset of this reporting, I think similar to Matthias, I didn't really understand the impact of volume and the sort of practice makes perfect mantra in these PICU settings. And that that holds Mm -hmm. true, not just for the primary doctor involved, but the whole team. Well, Matias, Cynthia, I know this was quite an undertaking of a story. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks thanks for having us. Matias Gaffney and Cynthia Dizikas are investigative reporters at The Chronicle. Be sure to check out their follow-up investigation on John Mayer Health, which was reported with data editor Dan Koff at sfchronicle.com slash Health and on the Chronicle app. There, you'll also find portraits of the families you heard from, as well as their children. The interview audio you heard in this episode was collected by Matias and Cynthia. Thank you to Katrina Daly's mother, Vicki Plumley, and Isaiah Lofton's mother, Michelle Brantley, for sharing their stories with us. Hospital leaders at John Muir Health and Stanford Medicine Children's Health declined to be interviewed for this story, but they did provide a one-page joint statement in response to the Chronicle's investigation. They said that, quote, at all times, PICU patients are cared for by highly trained pediatric critical care specialists, and that, quote, any death of a child, especially one in our care, is tragic, and our hearts go out to the families who suffer such a loss. 
The chief medical officers from John Muir and Stanford did not refute reporters' findings, nor did they respond to specific questions about the PICU or the children's cases, even though reporters provided HIPAA waivers from each family. The leaders pointed out that the Walnut Creek PICU's mortality rates were lower than at other similar-sized units. To read the full statement by John Muir Health, visit sfchronicle.com slash Health. This episode was produced by me and edited by King Kaufman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>